Kirsten Michelle Sills. Sorry, I was distracted. Oh my and God. I'm distracted. And he's the Bull Bay. I'll just tell, <laughs> spoiler alert, he's the Bull Bay. <laughs> hey, hey guys, I'm the Bull Bay. And this is So Curious, a podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. And I guess that would make us your hosts. Absolutely. This whole season of So Curious is about the science of music. And today we're calling back to season one, all about human 2.0 and biohacking. And that's because today we're looking at how music can affect our bodies and physical health. And first, joining us from the UK is Professor Costas Karagiorgis to speak to us about his research into how listening to music can make us better athletes. Yeah, I can't wait for that. And then we'll be sitting down with musician and Curtis Institute Professor Mary Javian about music's role in healthcare and how it can even help medical students be better doctors. Okay, so music obviously is very abstract, but it does give us like physical responses. Yeah, you know, it sounds kind of strange to frame this like this, but oftentimes when I hear a song or a really well-performed mm -hmm. lyric or something like that, I feel grabbed. That's a physical thing. Like your brain like, like, yeah. zhoo, like zeroes in on it. Well, maybe our next guest can help us get more answers. Dr. Costas Karagiorgis, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Introduce yourself and let us know yeah. what it is you do. Uh, my name is Professor Costas Karagiorgis. I work at Brunel University London, uh, which is in the United Kingdom, just to the west of London. My main area of research interest is how music influences the mind-body relationship. This is an area that I've been studying systematically for about 30 years with a specific focus on exercise, health, and sport. Wow. And are you yourself a musician? As it happens, I am. <laughs> and that's how I got into this area in the first place. Actually, I was an athlete and a musician. I'm no longer an athlete, albeit I'm still quite heavily involved in track and field. But uh, yeah, I'm known to tinkle the ivories from time to time. So I still... Keep my uh, keep my hand in. <laughs> I love music that. I love concerned. that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So we'll just jump into the first question, which is, what are some of the different ways music can help improve athletic performance? There's an incredible array of ways in which music can enhance athletic performance. And uh, if we break it down to the ways that athletes use music, one of the main applications is that athletes use music pre-performance. They do this to and gender an optimal mindset. Some athletes need to be psyched up, some need to be psyched down. I guess mm. one of the most famous exponents of using music to psych up is the celebrated American swimmer, Michael Phelps, who was famed for his particularly rap-centric playlist. I recall vividly when he was in London for the 2012 Olympic Games. He was listening to a track on a loop. The title was I'm Me. And that track has the refrain, yes, I am the best. And no, I ain't positive. I'm definite. I know the game like I'm reffing it. So you can see that he was drawing huge affirmations from the lyrical content of that track. Now, as well as using music before competition to stimulate or to sedate, 
Many athletes use it as part and parcel of their training routine. We call this in science an in-task application. These in-task applications come in two forms. One is called asynchronous music. This, in essence, is ambient music, music playing in the background to elevate the athlete's mood, to relieve the pain, to reduce their perceived exertion. Another type of in-task application is known as synchronous music. And this is where athletes consciously synchronize their movement rate to the rhythmical qualities of music. And actually, this uh, synchronous application has also been used in competition. I recall vividly one of the best-known middle and long-distance runners of all time, the Ethiopian Haile Kapra Selassie, made really instrumental use of synchronous music. At one time, he was um, in Birmingham. That, that's Birmingham, UK, not Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> and he was competing in an invitation race over 2,000 meters. And his goal that day was to break the world best for that distance. He made the rather unusual request to race organizers to play his favorite piece of music, Scatman by Scatman John. I recall that the starter's gun went off and the music was blaring over the PA. And Gabra Selassie broke Eamon Coughlin's world best for 2,000 meters wow. by one and a half seconds. Wow. That is a huge margin yeah. yes. in track and field terms. <laughs> Absolutely. So with this um, synchronous music application, there is the propensity for an ergogenic or a work-enhancing effect with music. Now, the third major way in which athletes make use of music is as a recuperative tool. And within this type of application, there are two main ways in which it's used. One is where it's used in between high-intensity bouts of training. So, for example, many athletes use HIT, high-intensity interval mm -hmm. training, which I'm sure is also used by many of your listeners. One of the main consumer resistances to HIT is that people feel really bad while doing it. It's unpleasant. <laughs> and so by using music, not during the exercise bout, but during recovery, it can be used to assuage some of the negative feelings that people experience while they're engaged in high-intensity interval training. And another type of application is uh, the recuperative use of music. This is when you're done and dusted with your workout or your training session, you're feeling exhausted and soft, gentle, slow-tempo music is used to bring you back to a state of physiological homeostasis. With the interval type exercise and the respite music, our research has shown that it's medium tempo music that is most effective mm -hmm. in that regard. If you're using it recuperatively, it's best to use music from around 90 BPM. Down to 60 BPM. In order to return the athlete or the exerciser towards physiological homeostasis, a natural resting state. And you also mentioned earlier reducing pain. Can music reduce pain? And, and, and I guess what BPM helps reduce pain? 
Yeah, I'm glad that you've raised that as a question because it's something that's really occupied me over the last three decades or so, is, is how it is that music makes exercise feel easier. And we've looked at this in many, many different ways. Latterly, in fact, we've been using neuroimaging techniques, which allow us to take a sort of under-the-bonnet perspective, to peer into the brain to understand exactly what is going on. And using techniques such as electroencephalography, or EEG for short, a technique that uses electrodes to scan electrical activity in the brain, what we found is that the presence of music during exercise reduces the degree to which somatosensory areas of the brain, or to put it simply, areas of the brain responsible for communicating fatigue, communicate with one another. So we've discovered a mechanism that accounts for the fact that when you listen to music during exercise, your perceived exertion is reduced on average by about 10%. Even if the music is very middle of the road and not the sort of music that you would ordinarily listen to. I mean, let's imagine we played you some Metallica or some rip-roaring Iron Maiden. Right. That would still reduce your perceived exertion by about 8%. But if we were to play you your favorite tracks, the tracks that you have a predilection towards, the benefit in terms of reduced perceived exertion would be around 12% with an average of 10. So it's quite a small range, but um, going against what we hypothesized originally, it's not the case that specially selected music reduces perceived exertion. Any music can reduce perceived exertion. But there's one important caveat, and that is that when we work out or when we train at a very high intensity, let's say it's beyond around 75% of our aerobic capacity, music is relatively ineffectual in reducing our perceived exertion. It doesn't reduce our perceived exertion at very high intensities. It's extremely effective in doing so at low to moderate intensities. Having said that, our research has shown that although music doesn't reduce perceived exertion at high intensities, it goes on influencing the affective, the emotion senses of the brain, such as the cerebellum, the uh, reptilian brain, and the amygdala. And it can make us feel better, even at very high intensities of exercise. So during a really intense workout, even though music can't influence what we feel, it can influence how we feel it. I like that. I love that. The whole you're really blowing my mind with this whole perceived exertion phrasing. I know for me, when I'm at the gym, I don't want to hear myself struggle. I don't want to hear myself go like totally or or, or be out of breath. Like I don't want to hear the strain. So that's why I put on the music and I turn it up loud so I can just kind of get lost in the lyrics or the beat or the themes or whatever the case may be. I mean, as someone who like works out, it is so interesting how much of that kind of stuff really is like you against you. Or you against your brain. Right, exactly. That's what I mean. Your brain is communicating to you and and messaging and, and disguising certain things. Yeah. So we wanted to play a little game because we are trying to build what would be like the most scientifically optimal 
workout playlist. So if we were going to do that, what are things that you should be considering? And then also, is there specificity in like the order that things should go in? Well, as a preface to that, the Roman philosopher Lucretius said that one man's meat is another man's poison. And if we translate that into modern day parlance, one person's music is another person's noise. Mm. And so really you're touching on the holy grail in my area with this question, <laughs> because it's not the case necessarily that you can come up with a universal playlist that will work with equal efficacy for a large group of people. Music is a very individual stimulus. It's shaped by our peer group influences, the kind of listening experiences that we have during our formative years, our personalities, the type of activity that we do, the intensity of that activity. Taking this at an individual level to tackle the question that you've posed, a fundamental is the energy level that you're looking to attain in your workout and the energy level that is conferred by the music program. So the music program ideally will follow the ebb and flow of the workout. If you're just preparing mentally, I mean, for me, if I'm preparing mentally, let's say to go outside for a run on a very cold winter's night, I might listen to a track such as uh, Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. It's a slow but evocative track. It conjures imagery of Olympians of old striding across the sands of St. Andrews and trying to self-actualize and be the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. That inspires me. And then I might use some music for warm-up. As I'm going out in the dark and the cold, it might be uh, Running With The Night, Lionel Richie. Mm. And as the intensity of the workout grows, so the intensity of the music will grow also. And then as I'm warming down, I might use uh, softer tracks. And then when I'm recuperating, I might use a very soft and gentle track, such as one by Enya or Enigma. So thinking about the various physiological contours is really key, I think, when uh, you're selecting music. But uh, interestingly, our research shows that when you're using music during an activity, let's say it's a rowing ergometer workout or a cycle ergometer workout or going on the treadmill, there's actually quite a, a narrow tempo band that is effective. And that is between around 120 and 145 BPM. So when you're using the music asynchronously in the background, that tempo range actually caters for quite a broad range of intensity. I want to ask about future research. What is the future as far as exploring how music relates to uh, athletics and making us better performers? Yeah, what are you excited about in your field? Yeah, that's a super question. So as well as doing more work that is related to neuroscience and understanding what happens within the brain when we're responding to music, that is an ongoing program. I would say that a lot of the research that's been done in my field historically has been out of kilter with what technology has been doing. And what technology has enabled in recent years is for the synchronization of music with physical activity to be automated. 
to happen without any conscious processing. So this is a very exciting field of exploration for me and something that I'm working in at the moment. I actually have a related article coming out in uh, Leonardo with a colleague at the University of Manchester later this year. But we have a whole program of research planned to understand how automating synchronization influences the human organism. And that's something that I find very exciting. Trying to get on a par with the technologists, as I say, they've always been slightly ahead of where research (laughs) is, because you know it takes a long time to plan research, to get ethical clearance, to recruit participants, maybe spending a year going through uh, peer review, editing proofs. It's a really involved and uh, arduous process to publish an article. And so I tend to always think a few years ahead. And so the research that I'm working on right now will probably be published in two or three years' time. Well, we can't wait to uh, see it. Really, I know, but yeah, that is quite like the turnaround time there. Wow. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here and chatting with us. Professor Costas Georges. thank you so much. It's good to meet you both. Thanks, you too. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Professor Kara Georges. Definitely going to need to reevaluate my workout playlist next time I hit the gym. Do you have a playlist? Yeah, for sure. Like, but now that I know there is like that scientific side behind it, I mean, obviously this is the So Curious podcast presented by the Franklin Institute. (laughs) Of course, there's a scientific aspect. But like when he was hitting you with the BPMs, I was like, that's pretty dope. Yeah, sometimes I I go to the created playlist by whatever, you know, streaming platforms. Yeah, those are good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally speaking, they are actually good and they do actually work. And I guess it's because of those BPMs and that energy that's in there. Yeah, I love the curated playlists. I love how specific they've gotten because they used to just be like, workout and now it's like workouts from summer hits of 1995 written by a man named George whose mom's <laughs> name was Karen and it's yeah. like damn how'd you find all this song I couldn't agree more now we're gonna shift from the gym we're gonna go to med school uh, to talk about <laughs> to talk about music in healthcare. So, Mary Javian, welcome so very much to the So Curious podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Can you, Mary, introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do. You yourself are a musician, right? So, feel free to brag. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. I have always had many jobs, but I am on the faculty at the Curtis Institute of Music here in Philadelphia. I'm chair of department we call Career Studies, which I helped found. And it is basically all the parts of your artistry as applied to society. So I teach entrepreneurship and social practice. I'm a double bass player. I've been playing with groups like the Philadelphia Orchestra for the last 23 years or so. This week I'm playing with the Philadelphia Ballet. And I'm a curator. I have a a group that I'm artistic director for down in Memphis called the Iris Collective. And I'm also an artistic advisor for Astral Artists, which is a young artist support organization here in Philadelphia. One of the things that I know we're going to talk about today that just uh, finished up was I teach a class at the Perlman School of Medicine Mm, um, mm -hmm. called Humanism and Professionalism Through Music. Oh, awesome. Yes. I definitely want to hear about humanism. Uh Before we get to that, 
So through your work at Curtis and also your personal endeavors, you carry classical music in and outside of the the spaces where people might, you know, expect to see it and may not expect to see it. Why is this work important to you? Well, it's something that I've always been really passionate about. Even when I was a student, I started the first version of our outreach program when I was still in school at Curtis. And I just always had a feeling that this art form could mean more to more people that needed to be kind of brought out of the concert hall and more into neighborhoods, communities. I initially started with schools. There are a lot of music teachers in the schools, but there's also a lot of need to collaborate and support those programs. So I started doing that early on. And then I also started to get really interested in how other genres can collaborate and connect And even, I would say, I'm sort of genre agnostic now. I I feel like we're living in a post-genre world, and Mm. so I don't like to kind of keep things in just one box when it comes to those sort of things. That's awesome. What what would you say is, like, the standard way that people kind of interact with classical music? Mm. And also, where's, like, the most awkward or strange or weird or silly place that you brought classical music into? Oh, yeah. I'm always taking it to strange places. In fact, whenever anything like weird shows up at Curtis, the security staff will call my cell phone. (laughs) because There's a, I don't know, an oud here in the lobby. We don't know what to do with it. It's probably Mary. It's probably Mary. So, well, I mean, not the weirdest place, but one of the most amazing places where I've performed music was actually inside a maximum security prison. So I worked with my grad students at Curtis at Greaterford Prison for two years. And then we moved over to the Phoenix. And we were working with Villanova University, which has an awesome program where guys can get degrees while they're incarcerated. And so one of my grad students was teaching the music class. And I was bringing in my Curtis students to help support that because we couldn't use you know, recorders or anything. They were writing music and they couldn't hear it unless we came in with our instruments and played it for them. So that was actually really awesome. Now, let's talk about how music, I guess, affects health and interacts with that. What are some of the residencies Curtis has set up in healthcare settings? Right. So after working in schools, later on, I started getting really interested in healthcare, And it's been an amazing experience. The first thing I think that happened was one of my friends who was a professional violinist for 15 years, went to med school at 40 at Jefferson. And she's now a psychiatrist. Her name's Dr. Lee Beverly Shen. And um, she got us into Jefferson. So we were working with a palliative care doctor. And I had a grad student at Curtis who was a harpist that was there for two years doing bedside. And actually, the nurses would assign which room she would go to. And we worked very closely on the cancer floors and the dialysis center. We even worked in the neonatal unit with the newborn babies. Wow. And that's all under palliative care? What's well, palliative the palliative care? care was mostly the cancer floor, where you're, mm. you're just treating people to make them comfortable. They're not going to be cured. Mm. Right. So they're at end of life. We also had residency at a hospice and we worked with music therapists and I would send undergrads in and they would play music on the floor with the guidance of the music therapist, because that's a really specific skill set that's different. When you're in music therapy, you have clinical outcomes. When you're a musician working healthcare settings, you're sort of aiding the environment, making the environment better. And it's always good to work in collaboration with professionals. So you're there to benefit the environment and not cause any harm. So we love like stories here. Like if you have any that you can share of like personal anecdotes, experiences, anything specific that you've noticed in terms of 
the healing power of music and your work in the community, I'm sure that it's endless, but anything that sticks out to you? Well, one of the most moving projects I've been a part of has been working with the Penn Memory Center. That is an Alzheimer's research center here at Penn, Mm -hmm. and it's an amazing place. It's run by a social worker, Felicia Greenfield, but it's founded by a neurologist and a gerontologist. And they do tons of work, not only with patients, but with caregivers. So we've been running a weekly music class at Curtis for patients and their caregivers together to come. And it's called Creative Expression Through Music. I think there's a lot of thought around Alzheimer's being remembering the music of your youth and hearing that will somehow like bring you back. And my mother-in-law, who I was very close to at Alzheimer's, and my husband and I and my brother-in-law and his wife were her caregivers for years. And so it's a disease that really affects the entire family for a long, long time. And the thing that was really beautiful about the class is that we saw couples that were coming together to actually write music, create music with our musicians. And they started new rituals together at home. Like this one couple I remember, they wrote a song about their garden and the Curtis students performed it and recorded it. They just got into this ritual each night of listening to music together, which they had never done before. And it's so beautiful to have a new thing entered, you know, when you're in and something as difficult as dealing with Alzheimer's. Yeah. How does understanding music make for better doctors? So that class at Perlman was really interesting. There is a dean at Perlman, Dr. Horace DeLisser, who reached out to me. He found me through the Philadelphia Orchestra. He is the dean of humanism and professionalism. So that's where the title of the course came from. And one thing that I think is really interesting is that medicine is sort of looking differently at how they train people for the profession and that there's so much more than just the list of symptoms on the page, but how do you how do you regard the whole human? And so there's really interesting things where doctors are even considering, you know, prescribing arts experiences for general health and wellness which is what I think we should run towards if you're really dealing with the whole human. And then there's the issue of extreme stress and burnout in the medical field. I mean, even before the pandemic, it's very intense, and we need those talented young people to, to stay and stay close to the why, why they went into this in the first place. And those arts experiences often kind of help feel them connected to their own, you know, their own why and their own purpose. I'm really intrigued by you saying about like prescribing experiences. Yeah. Is the goal in the future, like your insurance would maybe one day cover something like going visit. to right, a museum <laughs> or a concert? Oh my gosh, it would be amazing. Right. Well, I mean, that's one of the things in my undergrad class at Curtis, you know, if you look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. we have this partnership with Philly House, which is the largest and oldest homeless shelter in Philadelphia. And we actually work with them and the staff and the musicians, we were all looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, you think about a shelter and they're the basic needs like food, shelter. When you move up the pyramid, there are things that every person still deserves to have a sense of belonging. And if you want to get all the way up to the top and self-actualization, creative activities are what do that. And all people should really have those experiences in order to live their truest, fullest lives. 
So, you know, the name of the class that you were teaching to the Penn Medical students was called Humanism and Professionalism Through Music. Is that the humanism aspect when you say that? Like, Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the course goals were kind of lofty, like uh, increase, yeah. increasing tolerance of ambiguity. Mm. which artists tend to have a lot of, or we should have a lot yeah. of, you know, and an increasing empathy. The cognitive qualities of empathy are developed through things like the arts. Have you had any feedback from any of your, like, med students that you've been teaching in terms of what they took away from it as people who maybe have never had an experience in the arts side of things? Well, so it's interesting because the class was originally developed for people that didn't have a background in music. Yeah. And then my last cohort was super musical. But I will say that even though they had all played music and studied music, except for a couple of them, they had never really connected that to what they are going to do as doctors. Mm. And so one of my guests came up from Johns Hopkins Peabody, and her name is Sarah Hoover, and she wrote an awesome book on music and healthcare. And she was kind of opening up to all these possibilities for what the future could hold between these two spaces. And that was really kind of eye-opening to them, particularly that point about, like, what if we get to the point where we're prescribing arts experiences? And then when we had Jason Carlowish from the Penn Memory Center come and talk, he said the same exact thing, and they had never even talked to each other. So there, there is something happening. <laughs> there's something moving that we need to keep playing with and keep poking at. Well, I mean, this was amazing. Thank you so much, Mary, Javian. It was so great to chat with you. It was. It was awesome. And we look forward to seeing what your work has to come. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Thank you so much, Mary, for finding the time between teaching and performing to come on and chat with us. Humanism is such an interesting word because it sounds so vague, but like, yeah. no, it is just like the innate side of us that we can't really, I mean, I guess she found a way to pinpoint it and teach a class on it, but just like, you 100%. know. 100%. This is the reason why I really enjoy this podcast, So Curious, presented by The Frame List, is because <laughs> we oftentimes, like, we know this innately in ourselves, but we don't have the language or understand the actual kind of like, you know, academia mm. framework uh, around these sensations and these experiences and these ideas and values and things like that. But we absolutely understand that the health of a human goes beyond the boundaries of of, you know, doses of medicine. Yeah, and as somebody who has, and I do not say this lightly, a lot of doctors. <laughs> I go to the doctor a lot. I can tell you, like, that kind of stuff is so noticeable. When I have a doctor who I can tell is, like, taking interest in in me and my feelings in my life, yeah. mm, chef's kiss. <laughs> so we've got some awesome guests coming up. So please be sure to subscribe to So Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And please make sure if you have a second, just give us a five-star review, write a little something nice or just the stars. If you don't have time, it goes such a long way so we can get this word out to other people who are interested. Thank you so, so, so much. And be sure to join us next week when we look at the science behind how we understand music and language and how the two may not be as different as you might think. And what that seems to do when you look at the brain is it seems to take circuits in the brain that were more specialized for singing and retrain them for speech. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Montefusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's chief bioscientist, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. 
Head of Operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger, and I am Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the Bull Bay. Thank you. See ya.